You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. I think the problem with always comparing yourself to your immediate peers is, especially if you're doing well, your peer set will get better, right? Like, think about it. Like, if you're just like, oh, I did really well and I got this promotion and now it's like, okay, now I'm making more money and I'm doing social activities of people who are higher income. But now you're going to find the richest person in that circle and then you're like, wow, I'm poor relative to them, right? And you can keep doing that. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. All right, by now, I know I am sick of hearing the R word floating around. I'm sure you're sick of it too. Dare I even say it aloud? Yes, I am talking about a recession, the economic slump that our friends, family, and pretty much every reporter in America seems to be talking about these days. But it's for good reason. And just this month, major companies, including Oracle, Shopify, and Lyft, they've all announced layoffs. Our 9% inflation rate is making more of us rethink our spending choices everywhere from the grocery store to the bookstore. And the housing market has turned from a seller's market to a buyer's market seemingly overnight. The median sales price of new homes is now down more than $54,000 just since April. And the number of mortgage loan applications is at a 22-year low. Of course, the Fed is doing whatever it can to bring us in for that Goldilocks landing by raising interest rates. They've gone up four times now. Will it be enough? These are the questions that all of us are asking, and they're not the only questions. We're all wondering what we should do do with a capital D, because during times of uncertainty, it's easy to feel anxiety, even panic that drives us to want to do something different. But it's those knee-jerk type of reactions that we're tempted to make when things get rocky that we actually have to watch out for. They're the things that can get us in trouble. Any decision that we make with our money really should be dictated by facts. We should be looking at the data. For example, we know that investors who stayed in the market during the 2008 downturn, they fared much, much better than those who pulled their money out. So what data do we look at now? What facts about our economy and the market should we be using to guide our future financial decisions to survive and really thrive during an economic downturn? Today, we're going to talk about those numbers, and we're going to do it with Nick Majuli. He is a data scientist and the chief operating officer at the financial advisory firm Ritholtz Wealth Management. On his blog of dollars and data, he takes a look at the numbers that inform our financial decisions and breaks down what we need to know about them. And he's also the author of a new book that caught my eye. It's called Just Keep 
buying, proven ways to save money and build your wealth, where he crunches the numbers to answer the biggest questions in personal finance and investing today, and he offers evidence-based methods for building wealth. Hey, Nick, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jean. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I got to hear a little bit more about the title of this book, Just Keep Buying. Where did it come from? What does it actually mean? And why did you choose it? So the book actually answers a bunch of questions. And I think originally my publisher was going to call it like a data scientist answers 15 questions in personal finance. And I was like, that's the worst title I've ever heard. (laughs) So we scrapped that. There's a guy named Casey Neistat. He used to like upload YouTube videos like a vlogger. And he said there was another YouTuber that gave him advice named Roman Atwood. And he gave him the advice, just keep uploading, right? So I heard this like a long time ago. And at the time, I was like doing all this analysis on the stock market. And I was like, wait, why can't I just take that idea, just keep something, right? And then I just apply it to, you know, markets. So as an investor, you want to just keep buying. You want to, you know, invest over time, accumulate assets. That's the core idea, you know, within the book. Of course, the book covers a lot more than that. If it was just those three words, you wouldn't need to read it or anything. Um, It goes over, you know, saving, investing. We can get into all of that. But that's just like a core. If I only could give you three words to like build wealth, that's what I would tell you to do. And when you say just keep buying, you mean all the time. You shouldn't be focused on like buying the dips or market timing, right? It's really the kind of 401k investing that most of us or many of us do where we get paid and we buy with every paycheck. Yes, you should just keep buying over time. It's not about market timing or all that. And I discuss why this is true and we can get into that. I can discuss the data behind it, everyone's simulations, back tests, all sorts of things like this. And that demonstrate definitively that any of these type of timing schemes are usually a very bad bet for investors. And if if you get lucky once, doesn't mean you're gonna get lucky again, right? So you might you might get lucky one time, just thank your lucky stars, move on. But if you keep trying to time the market, you will fail in the long run. I can almost guarantee it. I don't wanna go down the rabbit hole too deeply, but tell me the facts behind this. I mean, why does it not work to try to time things? Why does this buying the dips that has become so popular not work? And why is buying all the time better? Well, I want to differentiate between two things. There's buying the dip and then there's holding up cash in anticipation of buying the dip. Those are very different, right? If by chance, let's say it's March 2020, right? The market was down, I think, 33% at the bottom, right? Let's by chance say you got a huge inheritance. The bottom was on a Monday. Let's say you got an inheritance on that Friday by chance, right? And you got a ton of money. You know, maybe, you know, someone died in your family. You got all this money and you wanted to invest it then you should have bought the dip on that Monday when it was super low, right? That would have been a good time to buy the dip. However, let's take the flip side of that. Let's say there was no inheritance and you've just been holding cash for forever, right? Now, obviously, if you got lucky in that moment in March 2020, it would have been worth it to buy the dip. But let's say you've been holding cash since 2017, but you go to wait for the dip. And by the time you buy the dip, that dip is even higher than when you could have originally purchased. And I use 2017 specifically because in early 2017, you know, even if you started holding cash, like I'm going to wait for a big dip, you would have to wait until March 2020 to get a dip. And even then, the prices were still 7% higher than what you could have bought in early 2017. So even with perfect timing, which is obviously impossible, you still end up usually buying at a higher price point, right? And so the, the, the core idea is simple. Like the market generally goes up and to the right. It's increasing over time. And so these dips do occur, but usually when they dip, they don't dip low enough to actually be a bargain most of the time. Once in a while, this does happen. Oh, wait, was a bargain. You know, March 2020 was a relative bargain, but they don't happen so often. So because of you trying to wait and time this thing, you end up missing out on future growth. That's really the problem. 
We are taping this show at the beginning of the second week of August. And I just want to level set that for people because I'm wondering where we are right now. July was a great month for stocks, right? The NASDAQ was up, what, 12% and the Dow and the S&P were up a little bit less than that. If you've been holding cash, have you missed it? Or was there even an it? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the bottom, we never know where the actual bottom is. But as of right now, assuming, you know, our local bottom was in mid-June. And so since then, we've been up. And then obviously, as you just said, July was a great month. So it's possible you missed it. And it's like, you know, if we hit a new high, you know, like end of this year or mid next year or something, then you're like, wow, I could have bought then. That's when the dip happened, you know, but I just don't think it's worth the time energy. Like we can even talk about the percentages and the returns and all that, but I don't think it's even worth the time energy to waste thinking about this in the priority of your life. How important is market timing and how much is that going to affect like your retirement and your future financial security and hitting your goals? Like I would say almost zero. And so like spending all this time talking about it, it's one of those things where it doesn't really matter. Maybe it matters for a hedge fund with billions of dollars, but for like you and me, the actual absolute number difference is going to be small if you get this right. Right. You know, even if you got lucky in the cases where you get lucky, maybe you say you earn 5% more. I'm not saying that's no money, but like even if you have a hundred thousand dollars, 5%, it's $5,000. Is that going to change your life? You're going to start flying first class because of that? No, it's not your retirement. (laughs) None of your future life's going to change because of one $5,000 payment. So sitting here and overanalyzing, it doesn't really add much value to our lives, right? So that's kind of how I like to think about this. I'm laughing at the flying first class comment because our biggest stress right now, we have this cockapoo and we got him and we thought he was going to be the same size as our former cockapoo who was 16 pounds and we could get him on a plane. And this dog will not stop growing. He is now 26 pounds. I'm never going to get him on a plane. And my one of my biggest stresses right now is, all right, what am I going to do to figure out how to fly with this dog? And You can't even get him in first class, I don't think. And I'm not putting him under the plane. So I think road trips are probably in my future unless I get a big inheritance and fly private. But that's not happening in the near near future. I know that one of the main arguments in your book is that people should focus more on increasing their income rather than penny pinching, basically, if they want to create long-term wealth. I mean, I'm always struck that there isn't more focus on your overall savings rate, the money that you're investing, because that's the base on which you grow. And that's the thing that when you think about it, we should be able to control more than anything else, right? I can't control the markets. I can't control inflation. I can't control interest rates. I can control my savings rate and my asset allocation, and that's about it. So Is that sort of the argument that you're making, that you focus on your income so that you can put more money to work? Exactly. Yeah, that's the exact thing, especially people who are getting started. If you're younger or you just haven't saved a lot initially, like the most important thing you can do is like you need to figure out what's the long term approach to building wealth. And if you just look at the data, it's like people with higher incomes it's much easier to save money when you have more income. Now you're like, well, that's so obvious, Nick. Well, then why are people still putting forth this, you should cut your spending type of thing, right? Of course, there are examples. You probably know someone in your personal life that spends way too much, and you know if they cut their spending, they could save a lot more. But those are few and far between. They're very rare in the data. If you actually look at, you know, as incomes go up, savings rates go up even more, right? And so it's so clear to me that it's like, that's what people need to focus on. I think there's an in-between there. 
actually, because a lot of what I do with people, particularly in our finance fix coaching program, is we do what we call getting dirty with your data, right? Where you actually have to look at what you're spending. And across the board, I found if people actually look at where their money is going, they have the ability to save more. I mean, I agree with you. If you earn more, it's easier. But don't you think part of it is that we spend so thoughtlessly these days that money actually does flow through our fingers? I'm not necessarily talking about people who are living paycheck to paycheck for whom it's really, really tight, but for those of us who swipe a little bit more than we should. I mean, yeah, I don't actually, I haven't looked at any data on that in particular to like see how much is like, I would guess you say frivolous spending or spending you could cut out. I guess it would be discretionary spending maybe in some ways. Of course, there are going to be people like that. I mean, I just don't have any data to discuss that particular point. I mean, I think obviously it happens. I know people where that happens too. And there's always ways you can cut. It can be very stressful if you're always thinking about, you know, spending every penny you spend all the time. I think the stress argument is my bigger argument here than even like, oh, can you cut spending? Of course you can. But spending also has its limits. Like you can cut so much, but at some point you're like, okay, I need to eat. I need to, you know, there's certain things that we can't just eat rice and beans every day. I mean, even though it would save us money, like, you know, at some point we have to have like, you know, enjoy our lives a little, right? So there's like a mix of how you do this. And it's really a gradient, right? Like we could go to the extreme cutters. And I don't think you're recommending that. I'm not saying you're making that point, but you, you kind of go, what I'm getting at. There's like the extreme spenders on one side and there's like, oh, don't worry about your spending, just grow your income. Now on in those two extremes, I'm probably more on the income side, but I understand that spending obviously matters and you should know what you're doing. I think that's important. My listeners, Nick, they know I really like data, right? I don't think Mm -hmm. numbers lie. And you do this every day. Why do you think a data-driven approach to money is so important? Well, because I think historically, you know, a lot of the beliefs we have about money came from people appealing to someone's emotions, like, oh, that makes sense logically, you know, or someone saying, hey, I'm an authority figure and you should listen to me because I've done this and I have money and you don't or whatever it is. It's some combination of it wasn't based on evidence, right? And so because of that, a lot of people made a lot of arguments that I think now we're starting to see now that we're digging into the numbers, digging into data on household spending, on income, et cetera, that we realize aren't accurate. And so that's kind of really the point of my book is to say, hey, there's a lot of things that we believe that are true in finance and personal finance and investing. And I've dug into it and it's actually not true. And so that's kind of just examples I like to give. And I like to think about that because, you know, there's a lot of things that make sense. Like, like for example, from my personal experience, I've never seen personally that the earth is round. Like even in airplanes, the earth looks flat <laughs> to me, right? But yeah. we can know from scientific studies and, you know, there's ways to prove that the earth is round, right? And so it's one of those things where like just because something makes logical sense, if it's not showing up empirically in data and evidence and things like that, I don't think we should count it as much. And so that's been my crusade here on the blog and now with the book, which is kind of basically the best insights that I've written about over the last five years. And that's kind of the thing I want to push for. And I'm, and I'm glad you kind of agree with that to some extent. I want to dig into those insights because I think there are a number of them that are going to be really surprising to people. But before we get there, let me just remind everybody that when it comes to investing, confidence is key. Confidence in your ability, your knowledge, and your strategy. If you're ready to do more with your investments, visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney 
to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. Review your current situation with an expert, get tailored investment strategies to help build, grow, and preserve your wealth. And you can get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do it for your future right now and speak with an advisor today. I'm talking with Nick Majuli. He is the author of Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. Okay, so let's talk about saving. You have said that people sometimes need to save less than they think. I think there are a lot of people who are going to be very happy to hear that. What's the evidence behind this advice? Because I got to say, I was looking just yesterday at the personal savings rate, which is tracked by the Federal Reserve in St. Louis, and it's sitting at 5%, which to me, that sounds like not enough. Yeah. So the data on this comes from looking at retirement and retirees and their spending and how much money they have. And basically, like if you look at retirees, only one in seven retirees are actually pulling down principal in a given year, which means that six out of seven are living off of their investments in Social Security or less than their investments in Social Security, which means some of them are actually reinvesting money. I think one of the most common things we hear with, I'm not sure how much you've talked about required minimum distributions, RMDs, but these are basically requirements that once you hit like age 72 or something, you have to start pulling money out of your retirement accounts that are to start paying taxes to the government. And one of the things they find is that a lot of retirees end up making these RMDs and then just reinvesting the money. They don't even end up spending it or like a lot of it. And so that's one piece of data that I think is important. It's just like retirees aren't, you know, pulling down as much money as we would think. We always talk about this retirement crisis, but I don't see it in the data. The second thing is if you actually look at the average amount of money that's left to heirs, like after, you know, people pass away, it's something like $300,000 for people in their 60s. It goes up in their 70s and it goes up more in the 80s. So as people are getting older, even though they expect their assets to go down, they tend to kind of go up over time, right? Because of market growth and things like that. So it's very interesting to see this data and to say like, well, there's supposed to be this huge retirement crisis. There's supposed to be all these issues with money. And so it like, it kind of makes me think that we're probably saving too much. Now, of course, I understand there are subsects of the population that aren't saving anything or saving very little. Those people probably do need to save more. But I think the vast majority of people, at least based on the data I'm looking at, do not have that problem. So a book I'd read recently that I wish I'd read before I wrote Just Keep Buying is called Die With Zero. And it kind of gets into this even deeper than I did. And I think that's one of those examples where people, you know, probably are oversaving if I had to guess in aggregate. It's funny that you mentioned Die With Zero. We actually had Bill Perkins who wrote that book on our show a little while back. It was episode 240 for anybody who wants to go back and listen to it. And it was a good conversation about this very topic. But I'm wondering your thoughts on oversaving, on saving too much actually lead into what you refer to as the biggest lie in personal finance. I've been talking about personal finance for a very long time. I don't feel like a liar. So I'm curious what that is. Yeah, so the biggest line personal finance, we've kind of discussed this earlier, it's that cutting, yeah, you can cut spending as your way to build wealth. And I'm not saying you can't cut spending at all, but I think that's a huge argument that's put out. And as I said, in the data, the people who are the wealthiest and have the highest incomes generally have the highest savings rate and the most wealth. So not saying that you can't cut spending at all or it can't be helpful. It obviously can help people get on the right track and at least know your money. I agree. If someone doesn't have 
any idea of, about what they're doing financially, it's far better to analyze your spending than to not look at it. But I think if you look at all the vast majority of people who are building wealth, it's because of high income. And I just think it's yeah. so clear in the data that it's really hard for me to see otherwise, right? And I It's not about the latte. I mean, Sally Krawcheck, Exactly. She has t-shirts that say just buy the damn latte. And I think you if you want the latte and that latte is important to you, then you should buy the latte if you can afford it, right? And the same by the way with the shoes. You just can't buy everything. And mindless spending can sometimes get people into trouble. But I am wondering, I mean, you have put forward some ways that we can actually spend money guilt-free, spend money and not feel bad about it. What is the two times rule or the two X rule? Well, the two X rule is basically a way to kind of, as I said, there's a lot of guilt around spending. There's a lot of guilt around a lot of these things. The two X rule is basically like, if you want to save, let's say you want to buy some nice shoes that cost you, let's say $300. If you want to spend that $300, you have to save on another $300 or 2X the original purchase price. And with that second set of $300, you either invest it in some sort of income producing assets or you donate it or you just do something else with it, you know, that that offsets the guilt basically, right? So if you really want something expensive, you might want to save up double for that. And I think that's a way to get rid of guilt. And it's also like, you know, you're doing something either good for someone else or for yourself for your future. So I think we need rules like this because, you know, as I said, there's so much spending guilt out there as it is. And I'm trying to get people to stop feeling so guilty about how they spend their money. I mean, they work hard for it. And then there's these people saying, yeah, you can't buy a latte, as you said, or something that's like, obviously extreme, like just buy the latte, like, enjoy your life, you know, but obviously you can't buy everything, you know. So I agree with that. You've also calculated that most people should save 50% of their raises and their bonuses in order to stay on track for retirement. I think this is important right now because wages are rising for the first time in a long time. So talk about this and where this percentage comes from. Yeah, so it's it's ironic that it matches the 2x rule. Like, you know, you're spending half now and then you're saving the other part for your future self. But in the case of, you know, a raise or a bonus, I ran all these simulations where I basically say, hey, imagine you're in some steady state, you're saving on some path to get to retirement, right? And now I give you this one-time, what economists call a positive shock, or just you get a raise, you know, you get a one-time raise of, let's say, 10%. The question is, after you get that raise, how much of that extra money should you be saving in order to stay on track? And if you say, well, Nick, I don't need to save any of it. I can just spend all of that. Well, if you start spending all of that, all that extra money you just got, technically you're spending, I mean, let's let's assume one thing. You want to spend the same amount of money throughout time, right? Mm -hmm. So if you start spending more now, you're going to be spending more in retirement too. And you haven't been saving for that increased spending. So as a result, you can't just spend 100% of your raise and retire at the same time and expect to have the same amount of money in retirement. So what you really have to do is you have to save some of that raise and then you can spend the rest guilt-free. And so when you actually run all these simulations, basically it comes down to around 50%. It varies, you know, depending on your current savings rate, but around Around 50% is the number it kind of converges to, which is very you know convenient and easy to remember. But yeah, basically, when you get that raise, if you see an extra $500 in your paycheck every two weeks, you need to set $250 aside, and the other $250 you can kind of spend as you choose. So that's kind of the thing to remember. Do you have a savings rate that typically works to get people from where they are today to retirement, like a static 
savings rate. When I started as a journalist, everybody talked about, oh, you have to save 10% of everything. And then the number went up to 15%. And if you start late, maybe it should be 20%. What's the rate according to the data? The problem is that your income, I mean, I'm just looking at income variability, like generally incomes are far more variable today than they used to be. So the advice I give is save what you can. There is no right savings rate. And I think the most important thing is to really, as I talk about, like increase your income. It's the long-term path to building wealth and just save what you can. And I think if you focus on that, your savings rate is going to jump around a lot. For example, I lived in Boston and I was I had a roommate and I was saving 40% of my after-tax income. I moved to New York. I was now in a studio like the, the next year and my savings rate plummeted to 4%. If I tried to save at 40% in New York City, after, you know, seeing my rent go up, living by myself, all this, I would have had a very miserable existence, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should stick to any particular, you need to save 20, you need to save 10, like save what you can. I think that's more important. It's a better framework to do. And then once you're saving what you can, any sort of changes like raises and bonus, things like that, that's where you save the extra 50%. Then it's very straightforward. And you can even save more than that. If you're like, hey, I don't need to spend this money, then save even more than 50. But I think minimum is 50% on raises and bonuses once you're kind of in a decent spot. You write that many people never feel rich. I think that's very true, especially right now with inflation. But it's something that I know that you've been studying for a long time, that people never feel rich regardless of how much money they have. I agree, but I'm also wondering, is there a way out? Is there a way for us to change those feelings, to adjust our attitudes? Yeah, I think the key here is to have some sort of absolute level or baseline to kind of compare yourself to. I know you're saying, well, it's not good to compare yourself to others, but people are going to do it. So one way or another, they're going to do it. We can try and, you know, imagine ourselves of, you know, removing all sense of hierarchy or status and all that. But I just don't think that's realistic. I think humans have evolved in this way and we're, we've always been like this. So to think, oh, never compare yourself to anyone else, I think it's kind of silly. So what you can do, I think the important thing is to like find some absolute metric that makes sense to you like imagine like if you ran your life a thousand times over a hundred times over whatever how many of those cases would you be where you are today or better or and how many times would you be worse you kind of that's what you have to do you have to compare to yourself you can't really you can try and look at people that are similarly situated like okay find people that were in my zip code grew up in my area had similar family backgrounds you can try to do that but it's difficult I think the problem with always comparing yourself to your immediate peers is, especially if you're doing well, your peer set will get better, right? Like, think about it. Like, if you're just like, oh, I did really well and I got this promotion and now it's like, okay, now I'm making more money and I'm doing social activities of people who are higher income. But now you're going to find the richest person in that circle and then you're like, wow, I'm poor relative to them, right? And you can keep doing that. And in the book, what I talk about is Lloyd Blankfein, who was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, he was interviewed and he's a billionaire. He's an app. He's, so he's by our definition rich, right? But he's like, I'm not rich. I'm just well-to-do, right? And th- I think the reason he says that is because he hangs out with like Jeff Bezos, David Geffen, <laughs> you know, Oprah Winfrey, all these people who are super much richer than him, right? And so he doesn't feel rich. And so when you'll say like, but you're rich, like compared to like average people, like, you know, me and other people, right? He's like, you're, you're very rich, but he's like, oh, you can't compare me to you, right? Like I, we're, we're different. We're in different social circles, which is a, it's a fair argument, but it's like a little outlandish. I hear it, but I make the argument that, okay, well, if you have a hundred thousand dollars in net worth, you're in the top 10% in the world. So I would consider you rich. And you're like, well, Nick, you can't compare me to like people in the developing world and all that. It's not fair, but It's the same argument. You saying I can't compare you to people in the developing world is the same argument as saying 
Lloyd Blankfein saying that we can't compare him to us. You know, it's like we're all just cutting hairs. Like what's rich really? At what what right. level? At what aggregation level? Should we look at nationally? Should we look at locally? Should we look at the world? I mean, so the only way to get out of it is to like escape all of those and say like, let's try and think about things in a, in a bigger picture and like how well are you doing relative to yourself? And I think that's the more important piece. Yeah, absolutely. If you can get yourself to do it and it is a hard challenge, that's a really healthy way, I think, to go through life, a much healthier way for your psyche to go through life. All right, last question. For people who are worried about what's ahead, for people who want to know what to do with their money right now, top three pieces of data-driven advice, top three takeaways. really depends on where you're at in your journey. So I think that the top three, the first one is like figure out where you are so in, in the first chapter of the book, I talk about this thing called the save invest continuum. Basically, how much can you save in the next year versus how much can your investments earn you in the next year in expectation? And if you can save a lot more, that means you probably don't have a lot of money invested. So the key there is to like focus on being able to save more. So raise your income so you can save more. So I think the top piece for most people is going to be like try and figure out how you can earn more income in the future, right? Whatever that means. If that means getting a promotion, if that means working on a side thing, whatever it is. Second thing is once you've done that, now figure out like some asset allocation you're comfortable with and then just keep buying that allocation over time. I wouldn't focus too much on your investments. It's only going to matter more as you get older or as you have a lot more money at stake. So that's the second thing. And third is like things are inherently unpredictable. So like trying to plan for, oh, I think inflation is going to come down. I think the housing market's going to do this or that. It's just impossible. I mean, just imagine trying to plan. Imagine it's October 2019 and you're like, okay, here's what I imagine is going to happen in the next year. You would have been completely wrong on every count, right? So don't try to plan for those types of things. They're very difficult. So those are the three things I would say. Find where you are in the save invest continuum and focus on the right area. That's probably for most people going to be your income. Second is, you know, set a good asset allocation and then don't worry about it. Just keep buying. And the third point is to not try and predict the future and plan for what's about to happen because it's very difficult. Amazing. Nick Majuli, author of Just Keep Buying, Proven Ways to Save Money and Build Your Wealth. I know that you write a popular blog. Where can we find that and where can we find more about you? Uh, yeah, you can find it at uh, dollarsanddata.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I try to answer all my DMs, so at Dollars and Data, and then my books on Amazon. Just keep buying. Thank you for doing this today. This was fun. Thanks. Appreciate it. We'll dive into your mailbag in just a sec. But before we do, just a reminder that Her Money is graciously supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that measures its success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic and friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service offers you peace of mind. You can see if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle joins us now for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I loved hearing Nick's perspective on the numbers. I feel like sometimes when we're feeling anxious about our investments and stocks, when you just focus in on the data, it kind of all becomes clear. Especially at a time like this one, right? When all of the yeah. economic headlines are flying at us so, so quickly. I think it was really helpful. And I was interested in what he had to say on saving as well. I'm going to look into that further because I do think that, gosh, I do not want to be telling people that they're under saving for retirement and putting so much pressure on them if, in fact, 
they're not going to need the money. I mean, I worry that we will need a lot more than we anticipate because you never know if you're going to be one of those people who who needs long-term care. You never know if you're going to be one of those people who has a health event later in life that's going to get incredibly expensive. And so I feel the need to help people prepare for that. But let me just say, I heard him and I'm going to look into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think I'm going to go back and listen to the Die With Zero podcast too, because Mm -hmm. I loved that conversation so much. Yeah. Yeah, I did as well. I know we have other questions from our listeners and people in our Facebook group. Why don't we dig in? Yeah. Our first question today is from a member of our Private Harmony Facebook group. She writes, ladies, I need homeowner home buying advice, please. I've owned a home for 18 years that I'm far from paying off. It needs a lot of major work. I work long hours and I can't afford the time or money to do the urgent repairs it currently needs. It's a three bedroom, but has large living and dining room areas that I don't need, nor do I want to pay to heat or cool. I'm finalizing my divorce after almost two years. And because my ex was a financial disaster, I'm paying off a couple of his secretly kept debts and not receiving a settlement or alimony. So my credit isn't horrible, but it's not great either. It's been an expensive divorce and my savings need to be replenished. What I do have is substantial equity in my current home, but no liquid cash to put down on another one. What I would like to do is sell this home and buy a nice up-to-date townhome. It would be easier to maintain, it would lower my expenses, and it would be a long-term investment so that my kids and I can live easier now and I can build my savings and life back up. How would a person purchase a new home in this situation? Is it even possible to bid on or buy another home now? Or do we need to sell, rent an in-between home, and then buy something new? Thank you. Thanks so much for writing. And let me just say, I get it, right? I've been through a divorce. I understand how topsy-turvy a time in your life this has been. And I think moving forward and getting rid of this house is the right move. A lot of times, many times, when women go through divorce and want to hold on to the home, it becomes this unwieldy asset that they just can't support. And because it was a house that was purchased with the intent to pay it or pay for it with two incomes. So I love the idea of getting rid of this house downsizing and being in something for the long term that you can sustain. A couple of questions for you. When you say your credit isn't horrible, but it's not great either, I'm not exactly sure what that means. And I'm wondering if you actually could apply for and get a mortgage with your credit where it is right now. As long as you're above 660, you should be able to get a mortgage, not at the least expensive rate, that would take a score in the mid 700s, but at a fairly decent rate. And if you do have substantial equity, it's possible that you could put down a decent amount of cash and just minimize the borrowing. So I'd actually encourage you to go sit down with both a realtor to get a sense of what your current home is worth and 
a mortgage lender to get a sense of what you could qualify for or how much your credit would have to improve in order for you to qualify for something that you can afford. And then you can just move forward. I don't necessarily think that you have to rent in between. These days, the seller is really in the driver's seat, right, in so many cases. And so you could set up a contract that says, I'm going to sell you my house, but I'm only going to sell it contingent upon me finding a new place to live, me getting myself and my kids settled somewhere else. And I would look at all of those options before you sort of decide that you're going to have to move twice, which is a lot of tumult in the middle of an already tumultuous situation. That's where I would take this. Go ahead and do some real on the ground research and see. The last thing I wanna make sure, and you should ask your lawyer this question, In regards to where you are in your divorce, you just want to make sure that the assets are separate enough that you are free and clear to buy this house and know that it is yours going forward. So check all of those items off and you should be good to go and good luck in your new life. I hope it's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jean. Yeah, I feel like there's some hassle here definitely to come, but I do feel there's a lot of hope in the future for a fresh start, which is amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else we got? Our next question comes to us from Christine. She writes, Hi, Jean. My name's Christine, and I'm a 24-year-old student about to graduate into the field of social work that doesn't tend to be extremely lucrative. Based on the research I've done, I'm looking at a starting salary of between $50,000 and $70,000 a year, depending on the city. A couple of months ago, before my 24th birthday, my parents revealed that they've been investing money for me in a trust, which I never knew anything about. Its current value is $1.5 million. In my last couple of months of school, I've been starting to think hard about how I want to handle my finances. I want to have a plan for how I will behave with all of this money that is in my control all of a sudden. My sister is in a much more lucrative field and won't have a need to spend it until she's ready to buy a house, but my situation is much different as my net worth is only about $5,000 right now, and for me, it will be so tempting to use that money for things that I wish I had my own money for. However, I really do want to build wealth and not rely on the money my parents saved for me. So far, I've put a few thousand into stocks, a few thousand into a Roth IRA, and about 1,000 in crypto, and I believe that my own personal distribution needs work. My question is very general. How do I treat this money when I know that if I leave it there and try not to touch it besides maybe buying a new home, in 40 years when I retire, I'll have a much more comfortable retirement? Also, do you have any advice about being a young person with lots of money and general advice about how to grow that wealth? The allocation is about 3% cash, 90% of it is invested in about 20 different companies, some tech, but there's a pretty great distribution between different markets. My parents did a good job managing this money. The amount they originally invested was only $150,000 since 2003 but they no longer have any access to this money, so now it's on me to manage it. It feels very overwhelming to be responsible for all of this. 
Any advice you can give me would be amazing. I love your podcast so much. And part of why I feel this motivation to make a plan and be responsible with this money is because of your show and how I've learned from you that having a plan is so important. Wow, Christine, what amazing parents, right? I mean, this is such an amazing gift and I'm so happy that you are taking a breath. I'm so happy that you are taking a pause and realizing that this is an opportunity that you just don't want to blow. You know, I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks before we taped this podcast, we had yet another huge lottery winner. They won $1.3 billion. And out came all the studies about how when you look at lottery winners, about 70% of them are bankrupt after seven years. Why is that? It's because they don't breathe. They don't take a step back from the money and say, this is an opportunity and I don't want to blow it. So here's what I think. I think that you came to the answer in the last paragraph of your question, which is you need a plan. And in order to get a plan, you need a planner you need a financial advisor. Most 24-year-olds don't need a financial advisor. Most 24-year-olds don't have one and a half million dollars that they are now responsible for. There are planners that are called fee-only planners. And I wanna make sure that you get into the hands of a fee-only planner. Somebody who will put a plan together for you that you can either execute yourself or you can pay them to execute for you. But what I don't want is somebody trying to sell you stocks or bonds or other investments on a commission basis. That is a dangerous road for you to go down right now. Specifically, there is a network of planners called the XY Planning Network, and they specialize in helping younger people manage their money. I would look there. A lot of them are fee-only financial advisors. And talk to several go through the process of interviewing at least three or four of these advisors, lay out your scenario, think long and hard about your goals, right? You know you want to be able to retire comfortably eventually, but you mentioned a home, and I think your parents probably had a home in mind when they were thinking about when they were thinking about putting money away for your future they may even have been thinking about college for kids that you may eventually have or not have the point is it's there's so much money here that the opportunities are really endless and so while you are interviewing financial advisors what i also think is that you should try to do nothing sit on this money. Don't make decisions. Give yourself time to formulate your plan until you need to make decisions. And try to look at the money that you are going to be earning and think about living on that money. Hopefully you come closer to the 70000 than the 50000 particularly in this environment of growing wages. But whatever it is, make yourself a budget. Look at what it is 
going to cost you to live year to year and try to live like a 24 year old who doesn't have this money for a while. Try to put it away and not allow it to impact you and particularly not allow it to impact your relationships. I had a long conversation with a guy named Michael Norton on my Everyday Wealth radio show. And Michael Norton wrote a book called Happy Money. And he says that one of the big reasons that these lottery winners fall apart is because their social fabric erodes, that everybody who they ever knew comes out of the woodwork expecting them not just to give them money, but to do things like pick up every dinner check. And so I'd like you to try to keep this in a corner as much as you can. Hold on to the things that have always been important to you. And as you focus on your future, make sure that you tread carefully. And if you need any other help, you can come right back to us. We are happy to answer more questions. Yeah, absolutely happy to dive into more detail, but I love the thought that you're putting into this. I love the approach that you're taking to do right by this money and right by your future and to honor what your parents have done for you. So it's an amazing job you're doing already. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Jean. Let me just take a second to tell everyone that today's episode is also sponsored by PayPal Honey. I am a big online shopper, always have been. I'm sure some of you are too. It saves me time and Thanks to Honey, it often saves me money. So if you haven't heard of Honey, it is a free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes. And essentially, it applies the best ones that it finds to your carts at checkout. For example, Honey recently saved me 20 bucks on a new pair of running shoes, and it was super easy to use. When you check out, what'll happen is that you'll see the Honey button drop down, and all you have to do is click Apply Coupons, wait a few seconds as it searches, and if Honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the price drop in real time. So if you're not using Honey today, you could be missing out on substantial savings. It is free. It's easy. It only takes a few secs to install. You can get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash hermoney. Joinhoney.com slash hermoney. And in today's Thrive, inflation is all too real. At least that's how it feels to me. The price of everything is on the rise and those price increases are likely to impact the price of your holiday celebrations. Ouch, from travel plans to turkey dinners. At hermoney.com, we compiled some helpful hints to help you save now for your Christmas, Hanukkah, and other holiday celebrations in this inflationary year. First, think about what you want those holidays to look like. Just focusing on how you want to celebrate and what gift giving will look like ahead of time can actually set you up for a happier holiday season. Acknowledge that you might not be able to go all out this year or buy the same number of gifts that you did last year. It's time to be intentional with your spending and think about what matters most to you. So make a list of those top five or 10 things you definitely want to experience this season and put those at the top of your priorities. Next, 
try to estimate what you might spend. And no, we don't know for sure what will happen with prices and how fast they'll continue to climb, but you can budget for your celebrations now by making a list of what you might spend based on what you actually did spend during the last holiday season. If you're comfortable with that level of spending, well then tack on an extra 10% to that number. Your goal will be to save that amount over the coming months. If that seems too high, if you ended up paying off the holidays over many, many months afterwards, then revisit those numbers. Take them down a little bit, keeping that list of priorities in mind. After you've done that, you might want to set up a separate savings account for your holiday goals if you think you'll be tempted to spend the money that you're putting away. You can also track holiday savings in an app or a spreadsheet that you're already using. Finally, if you already know that you are going to be traveling for the holidays, might I suggest that you get a jump on those travel plans right now. Tickets are only going to go up from here on out. Same with hotels. So book as soon as you know when you'll be traveling, when you'll be able to arrive and depart. The big rule of thumb for this inflationary holiday season is to be intentional, but also to be realistic about your celebrations. There are ways to have just as much fun when you spend less Feeling like you automatically spend because of inflation, that's where the real danger lies. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Nick Majuli for showing us the hard data that should be guiding our finances. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review, please. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon.